0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM.
1: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Leadership in Action on Business Radio.
2: Welcome to Leadership in Action on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeff Klein, Executive Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program here at Wharton. And I'm here on Zoom with my good buddy, some would say we share a brain, my friend and colleague, Anne Greenhall. How are you, Anne?
0: I'm good, Jeff. How are you today?
2: Uh, You know, I'm doing pretty good. I would just say, if we do indeed share a brain, you have the virtuous parts of that.
0: Oh, that's very kind. <laughs> I know I have the less mischievous parts. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so a reminder to our listeners that new episodes of our show premiere every Friday, 9 a.m. Eastern here on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. And if you haven't started yet, uh, please follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. So, Anne. Uh, it is a beautiful day outside here in Philadelphia. Yes. Um, spring is in the air. We're a few weeks past the one-year anniversary of the day the world shut down. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, before we get into our, our conversation, we have a fascinating conversation coming up uh, today. But before we get into that, I, I just ask you, uh, what are, in the spirit of springtime, Mm. feeling hopeful about, what, uh, what do you look forward to nurturing as it begins to blossom?
0: Oh, Jeff, that's a beautiful question. <laughs> uh, I am hopeful that we will be able to have students on campus sooner rather than later. And I realize that we are going forward. We're not going back. It won't be exactly the way it was. Um, but I am appreciative of the lessons and the skills that I have had the opportunity to learn while we've been in a year of the pandemic. So I'm very excited to have the opportunity to see my students face to face.
2: Well, thank you, Anne. And, you know, if I if I ask myself the same question, um, it's interesting. I... I probably would have answered somewhat like that. Um but you know, I a little little while earlier today I had the chance to just go for a walk. Um and it, it made me realize how much I, I just want to be outside with other people. Like that part of my life um both coming out of the winter as well as, you know, hopefully starting to emerge um from the pandemic a little bit. Uh, I I know I'll appreciate adding that part of my life back in. Gradually, gradually. So with that, let's do a radio interview. What do you think?
0: I love it. (laughs) I always learn something.
2: So um, our guest today served in former President Barack Obama's administration, and he was also a part of the Biden-Harris transition team focused on the US Department of Education, and the Corporation for National and Community Service, uh, otherwise known as AmeriCorps. He's currently the Chief of Staff and Assistant Vice President of External Affairs at Howard University, and we're looking forward to asking him all about his life of public service. So um, let, let us welcome to the show Paul Montero. Paul, welcome to Leadership in Action. Thanks so much for having me. Um, let me, if I can, just say a little bit more about you before we begin our conversation. Um, you know, y- your, your first federal experience was in 1999 as a, a marshal's aide at the U.S. Supreme Court. You served in the Washington, D.C. office of then-Senator Barack Obama, and after the 2008 election, you joined the White House staff as an associate director of the Office of Public Engagement and coordinator of the White House Mentorship Program for Young Men Attending Local High Schools. Uh, President Obama later appointed you as the National Director of AmeriCorps VISTA. Uh, VISTA stands for Volunteers in Service to America, and that is the National Service Program founded in 1965. Um, You've been designated Head of Community Relations Service at the U.S. Department of Justice by then Attorney General Loretta Lynch. You've served as an appointed member of the Prince George's County Public School Board of Education in Maryland um, and, and still serve there. And you are also uh, a member of the Board of Governors of the Wesley Theological Seminary and on the Board of Directors of the nonprofit Helping Children Worldwide. Um, all of this now has led you to your role as as I said chief of staff and assistant vice president of external affairs at Howard University. So rather than ask you about any of those particular stops what I want to do Paul is ask if we were to find a young Paul Montero let's say 15 16 years old and, and we asked that Paul what do you think you'll be doing around around the year 2020 2021 um what would
1: he, what would he have told us? Well, great question. I think the, my 15 year old self would have said I would be the best AP U.S. History teacher at High Point High School in Beltsville, Maryland, you will you that, that ever existed. And um, just, you know, to the power of exposure, I had a wonderful AP U.S. History teacher, Norman Schwartz. Oh, and this is a guy who gave almost 30 years to. Uh, a public school system that served a lot of low income students from many backgrounds and um, just seeing his love of history, but his, his commitment to his work. I, I said, that's what I want to do. What did you love about
2: history, about studying history?
1: Uh, Just the, the, the way that it explains sort of what we see today. It put, put it in context and sort of the world that we inhabit didn't just come to be there are specific reasons, happenings, people, events, uh, that explain the reality we've been handed. And um, and it helped me understand sort of current events in, in a deeper way. And and the joy that he brought to the work. Uh, tough as he was, I mean, this guy he gave us a ton of work to do. Um, and and in a sense, we you know, we worked to meet that high standard he set for us. I think that's the dangerous thing about you know, folks that set low expectations, you know, folks are happy to meet those. To, rise to, yeah. Yeah, uh, but but, Norm Schwartz, he ran a tight ship. We had s- several pages of writing each week, tons of pages of reading each week in preparation for that AP exam in the spring. And he enjoyed it, and you could tell he enjoyed it. Um, and, and the amount of work it takes to not only teach, to, but to prepare, you know, a year-long trip through American history and then grade all of the good, bad, and otherwise writing that you get, you know, every weekend so that the next week you're getting feedback on how you can improve as a writer, as a student. I mean, that is just, you know, it, it gave me a lot of respect for him and his commitment to teaching.
2: Well, it, it, it's so interesting you, you share that. Um, I have a 15-year-old daughter. Um, and within the last week, and she's she's completed AP Uh, U.S. history this year, sophomore year, and she's looking forward to part two next year um, in her junior year, where she'll have the same teacher, Peggy Zayner, who has the same kinds of standards and the same expectations. And it's the same level of work. Um, Sam has said, I've never worked so hard um, in any class. And she said to me last week, you know, dad, if I'm not a writer, I think I might want to teach history
1: um so it, it really it's the power, I mean, that's the power of a good teacher that's yeah. the power of a good teacher yeah yeah um
2: and so yeah. the conversation well
0: i have to pick up there paul that's just so inspiring to hear you hear you say that um i'm wondering then uh you went to university of maryland am i right I'm remembering mm-hmm. that that's right, right.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: did you aim to study history thinking that you would eventually teach what happened <laughs>
1: Yeah, I I started at the University of Maryland, first in my family to graduate high school. So making it to college was a a huge event. And, um, you know, coming from a low income background, the risk aversion was real. So it's sort of like I'm not trying to be an astronaut. I'm trying to be, again, something I know is a good career that I can live off of like a high school history teacher. So I was a history major thinking that I would use that training at Maryland to mr schwartz's job when he retired and um and then that experience at the supreme court happened 1999 came a mentor encouraged me to apply for uh this role as a marshal's aide and you know first case of imposter syndrome of like the supreme court doesn't hire people like me you know um but they did and um you know as a marshal's aide, you get to sit on the bench with the justices so as a freshman in college. I'm sitting on the bench with the justices. I sat behind Breyer and Thomas to fetch them water, to be clear. <laughs> um, but, you know, the 10% of the oral arguments that I understood was fascinating to me. And, and I saw the best, in some cases, the worst lawyers in America um, uh, coming to present to these justices. I, you know, it's 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 hard to come out of that experience not wanting to be a part of, um, you know, the the, the process. So, um that, that Supreme Court experience really changed my trajectory to say I, I I want to be a lord. Oh,
0: wow. All right. So maybe one follow up here. The mentor who who put you on that path, who was that?
1: This guy named Terry Royal. Uh, we we actually went to church together. Terry Royal. Um he I had known him growing up, you know, in my church. He did the A V, so he was always on the soundboard, you know, mixing tapes and stuff. But uh yeah, he's the one that suggested I apply and um, he knew I was interested in history, um, thought I might be interested in, in doing that. And um, yeah, whatever advice I leave, I mean, go for it. That's my advice. You know, the, put yourself out there.
0: So great. And then you studied law.
1: I did. I came to Howard University School of Law. Um, one of the best decisions I could have made. Um I took a two year sort of interlude between undergrad and law school because I was broke. Um, and at the time I felt like, um, very disappointed in myself because I was an active student leader on campus at Maryland. All of my friends and I were planning about next steps, med school, law school, whatever. And then, uh, the money wasn't there. So, um, and two, I came out in 2002, it was a bad summer to graduate because that was the year of Enron worldcom, a lot of corporate scandals it was a tough sort of economy to graduate into. Um, so I worked as a paralegal for two years, which was the best preparation I could have had for law school, uh, because I worked on, you know, a lot of cases, but one in particular, the, the California refund case, um, which I'm thinking about now as I, I sort of see what happened in Texas. Um, but, uh, you know, back in 2000, the state of California, um, had huge power outages. Um, and, and, came to find out they were manufactured power outages uh, by some unscrupulous power generators creating false shortages. Um, And the state of California was one of those uh, parties suing them for refunds. Um, But I never thought I would be interested in energy law. So that two years as a paralegal set me up well to go to Howard Law School, um, a school that's known for its role in civil rights and creating lawyers that are social engineers. Um, So yep, Howard was my destination.
0: So great. Jeff, I'll bring you back.
2: <laughs> All right. Well, let me remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Jeff Klein, and I'm here with Ann Greenhall. And our guest today is Paul Montero, currently serving as the Chief of Staff and Assistant Vice President of External Affairs at, at Howard University. Um, so, Paul, you mentioned that first experience at, at the United States Supreme Court. And um, I mean, w- what a unique experience. Uh, can, can you help help us and, and help our listeners understand, I mean, what is it like to walk into those chambers um, to be that close to, you know, the, the nine judges on the Supreme Court? Um, like, what, what are you filled up with?
1: I would say awe. I mean, the, if, if you've ever been in a building, it's an imposing structure. Um, the chambers, you know, very solemn spaces, There's not a lot of noise going on. There's a lot of reading, writing and researching. Um, and, and the justices, um, you know, I guess in our federal government, they're the least well-known figures other than maybe an RBG or, um, you know, someone uh, more prominent in the media. But uh, they're, they're largely unknown people. Um, to folks that aren't lawyers or litigants. And so getting to know them as individuals, um, you know, who who, in many cases, were looking to mentor or encourage or give advice to young people like me thinking about a career in the law. um so it was it was amazing to sort of know great things are happening. I didn't have the bandwidth or in, intellect or training yet to understand the the complex issues they're reviewing, but I wanted to be a part of it. And so, there was an excitement to it. Um, some of the cases were easier to understand. Um, some were more esoteric. But, uh, you know, when, when you're around excellence, it, it just, it speaks for itself. And it makes you want to be excellent. So, um, yeah, it was, I mean, they were all very nice people. Um, and um, I remember one 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 uh, end-of-term party. I, I don't know how I drew bartending duty, but I didn't drink. So... I guess the bartender didn't show up or something. And, and of course they tell me, well, you'll just be the temporary one that somebody will come and re- relieve you, but not before justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg came to get a drink. And, and I didn't know, and, and they, you know, they made it sound so easy. Like, oh, they'll just tell you what they want. You Everything's labeled. <laughs> so she orders Campari and soda. And I'm like, okay, well, I see Campari, but I don't see anything marked soda. So I go ask my buddy and he's like, just put water in it. And she was not fooled um, and that was like, somebody relieved me shortly thereafter. I'm like, why did you put me in this role guys? But I mean, they're, they're people. I mean, that's the thing. And that's like a consistent theme I've seen through my career of, of like the danger of losing sight of the humanity of folks. Even folks you think are totally wrong about things. Yeah. Um. Uh, you know, my, my hope for spring is just allowing more of this, you know, even if we're bumping into each other on the subway or, disagreeing about some issue. I mean, I think it's a dangerous thing when we're just limited to, you know, just reducing people to their views about this or their vote on that or, you know, so um, the, the justices are real people. And, and it was it was just awe-inspiring being around excellence um, and wanting to be a part of it.
2: Well, let, let me ask you one other question and then we'll, we'll start to move forward a little bit. You've, you've had such a rich set of experiences within your career. Um, you know, but but I do want to mark. I mean, you shared with us the the first in your family to graduate from high school, the first in your in your family to attend college. What's more intimidating, the the U.S. Supreme Court, <laughs> first day at the University of Maryland as a, a first generation college student?
1: It, great question, because it was University of Maryland. It, University of Maryland was you know it's it's a very large campus, pub, large public state institution. Um, you know, just getting lost, being one of 40,000 students um, where I was coming from, you know, a much smaller high school that was largely Black, coming to a large public institution that is very diverse um, and, 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 and wondering whether I can keep up and whether I'll let my family down and wh- whether I'll get good grades or not. Um, a lot of people put their hopes on me to sort of, you know, do well. So that that was actually the more nerve wracking. I I was nervous heading into the Supreme Court, but that was gravy. You know, it's like you know, you know, I I might work here, I might not. You know, but I'm still a student at the university. So um, I was nervous in both cases, but more anxious about uh, succeeding as a college student and making it through. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Thank, thank you for sharing that. Um, So, I, I think the the story of first generation college students um I, I very much want it to be told in, in a much uh much more prevalent way right I don't think we appreciate the transition um that's happening as as these students join campuses for the first time um all right so Howard Law School um an interest in change and 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 then What I know of your biography is that you then end up serving in the Washington, D.C. office of uh, the junior senator from Illinois, right, Uh, Senator Barack Obama. So how do you find yourself there? And um, what is what is the mood? What is the work that you're engaged in uh,
1: as as you begin that time? So, between the Supreme Court and, and law school and starting in Senator Obama's office, I had actually served in Harriet Meyer's office, the White House counsel to President George Bush. And I figured to be a DC lawyer, you got to have some juice with the Politicos. DC is a political town, whether it's four years or eight years, one party's coming in or out. And I started at uh, the White House counsel's office the weekend after Hurricane Katrina. So I'm I'm a Howard Law student at this time. Some of my classmates were protesting the Bush White House because of their response to what was happening in the Gulf Coast and New Orleans in particular, how black people were being treated or cared for or not. Um, and it was also the weekend Chief Justice Rehnquist died, if you remember back to that time. Um, so you had, you know, well, usually Supreme Court spots aren't opening up that often. Um, we had three nominations and Harriet Myers was one of them. If you remember back, she was nominated as a Supreme Court Justice from her role as White House Counsel and then withdrew because members of the Republican base just wouldn't accept her. Um, so it, it, to me, that was a great experience in sort of seeing you know, folks on the inside who have a principled view of, of government, who see the role of disaster relief as squarely falling with state and local government. Mm-hmm. You know, they eventually came to realize this is their problem, um, but they realized it too late. But it was I I liked having that sort of dual view, learning at a historically black law school committed to civil rights, the, the legal strategy that dismantled segregation in America. That's our law school and working in the Bush White House to see how people can have a sincerely principled different view of the world. Not born out of hate, not born out of uh, animosity, just born out of their their experience and and trying to reconcile. You know, listen, we can disagree all day, but I'm not going to demonize you and you're not going to demonize me. Um, But Barack Obama gave a speech in 06. You know, I grew up very religious. He gave a speech on his view of religion and politics in 2006 at the Sojourners Conference. I read that speech. And I was like, "That yeah, that's what I've been thinking all these years." Because a lot of people know I'm from the 04 Red America, Blue America speech. Mm-hmm. That 2006 called a renewal speech about how religion has been used as a weapon, but but shouldn't be, and how it could be a mechanism to to bring people together. That that resonated with me in a big way. So I, I got to work for this guy, and um, yeah, that's what led me to to apply to work in the Senate office, um, and. Uh, yeah, the rest is history there.
2: <laughs> well, uh we're talking here with Paul Montero uh about his journey through uh public service and, and some some of the different branches of government, um, as well as you know the, the early phases of his career. And and Paul, in the, the few minutes we have before the break, um tell us tell us you know about. Senator Obama at that point um, in his career and in his evolution, uh, what stood out to you in terms of his leadership, uh, and and what made you want to follow him?
1: A couple of things. One was he was one of the few Democrats even speaking about faith and belief, not not just religion, but also for the secular humanists, also for the atheist agnostic. He was one of the few people, because this was 05, 06. The Democratic Party was running away from that issue because they were afraid of seeming judgy or they didn't want to tick off, you know, some of the constituencies in the party. For him to go out as a first term senator, even give a speech like that. I'm like, that takes guts. And it was a very thoughtful speech, not doing the kumbaya like we all believe the same thing. Can't we just get along? It was recognizing we all believe very different things. And in this diverse democracy, it's not a given this is going to work out. So religion is just one of the many things that could cause this experiment in democracy to fail, but it hasn't. And what you know, there are reasons that that's that's true. So the guts that it took to even speak out on it, and the thoughtfulness of the speech, and again, the desire for me to say, I want to be a DC lawyer, but I need juice on the Hill. I, I felt like I had juice in a White House administration, but I didn't have any uh, juice in in a in a Senate office. Um, and a senator who who many were watching to go, you know farther than the Senate. Um, so I just figured this is somebody I need to work for. I'm from Maryland. Paul Sarbanes was retiring that year. So, you know, I, I just did not uh, see an opportunity there. And then I love Barbara Mikulski. Barbara Mikulski is a legend in Maryland, um, but she's she was very tough on her staff. So I just felt like I'm not gonna survive in Barbara Mikulski's office. So I'm gonna apply to this Obama guy um, and and it worked out. But uh, yeah, I, I really, even back when i think back to those days my biggest fear was that this guy's going to be a jerk he seems wonderful on television his family seems great first day in the office i'm gonna find out he's a jerk my first experience in the office i walk in for orientation he comes up and says hey i'm barack and in my mind i'm like i know who you are sir like what you know what you know just a very i mean it is and and that's one of the best Levines i have from my years in obama land was I can seriously say the way he came across on television or on the internet, that's how he was. And, and, um, cause you can't pretend for 10, I guess you could pretend for 10 years, but you know, the, he was very much someone who didn't take himself too seriously. I give a lot of credit to, to Mrs. Obama and the children for that. Um, but the, the, the fact that he didn't change that much as, as a person, you know, as a, you know, who he was in terms of his characteristics, I mean, that, that that is one of the most encouraging things of like there are good people out here, and and he, and Mrs. Obama would all, always say, "There's a lot of Baracks and Michelle's running around right now, you know that people make them out to be some special like aliens that dropped into Earth to you know to do whatever." There's a lot of you know good people out there that want to make things better, uh, that have a concern for folks, um, and and he and and the first lady showed me, you can be excellent and a decent person because sometimes people do the false trade off. Well, you're so smart, or you're so gifted in this. Yeah, you're a jerk to people, but that's no, that's a false choice. You, you, they, to me, showed me and modeled how you can be the best in your field and a a decent human being.
2: Our guest today, fascinating guest, Paul Montero. He is currently serving as the chief of staff and assistant vice president of external affairs at Howard University. Uh, And we've been talking about his life in public service, um, and- I will turn it over to you.
0: Thank you, Jeff. And Paul, really such a pleasure and an honor to have a chance to talk with you. I know we want to get to the present, but could we just spend a little bit of time on your time in the White House, in the White House staff as associate director of the Office of Public Engagement? Can you talk about a, um, a leadership moment? in your role at that time. So what stands out as a real accomplishment?
1: Uh, Well, you know, the five years I was there, even the bad days were good days to me. Again, it it was gravy to me. I mean, from where I started um, to have that role, it was was just a a blessing to work there for five years. The high points that come to mind, um, obviously um, the work around the Affordable Care Act, um the the, the work around the consumer financial protection bureau, I, I was responsible for outreach and engagement of particular communities, uh nonprofit organizations, youth organizations, um, faith-based organizations, and um setting up CFPB, you know, leveraging the voice of of the religious community. Again, not not just uh one one facet of that community, but whether it was Buddhist, Hindu muslim christian evangelical catholic um looking at the predatory industries that would prey upon people and when it got that bad that's when the clergy would find out that's when the priest would be told that's when the pastor would find out because the parishioner would say i need help paying rent this month well why do you need help paying rent this month well i got into this auto title loan and then or i got into this payday loan and you know and so the, the the houses of worship were often sort of the, the last stop on a pretty desperate road, but you would hear these horror stories from folks that uh, got involved in that shadow economy and uh, and turned to their you know trusted uh, faith community for help. But but at that point, you know, you're talking about significant debt and and, uh, and obligations. So um, those those stories were were impactful and and did a lot to help get that agency up and going and understand that you know there, there's uh there there's a partner that they have in in the nations uh you know congregations uh, to to protect consumers. Um I think the work that I did with Arab Americans um probably one of the reasons I left the White House was you know the the work we started doing in 2010 with the Arab American community when Tunisia kicked off the Arab Spring um working with Syrian Americans, Libyan Americans, Egyptian Americans um, on the very complicated nuanced issues that they had with our foreign policy in these different uh with respect to these different countries um you know the the august 2013 chemical attack in syria uh was assigned to me that it was time for me to go um i had just spent probably six months working with syrian american groups arab american groups about uh explaining to them why we were not taking military action uh to stop the the, the actions of the regime uh, so when a chemical attack happened on video, I, I just didn't feel that I would be effective um, in communicating the administration's view um, after that that incident happened, and, and it had been five years. So I I felt it was time for me to move on anyway, um, and, and I'm glad that the president appointed me as the head of AmeriCorps Vista. I, I really enjoyed that experience. Well,
0: I'm I'm glad you bring up AmeriCorps Vista and. Um, Jeff will indulge me here a little bit, but I am the proud parent of two, three children, two sons who both participated in AmeriCorps VISTA.
1: Dr. G. Yes. Nobody told me this in the, nobody prepared (laughs) me for this. Oh my goodness. This is
0: great. Yeah, both of them. And I have to say, you know, they participated after college and spent time working here, one in city year as part of the effort in the school district shadow teaching and then in the mayor's office working on the soda on the soda tax for pre-K education and my son that was my son Sam my son Tom up in New Hampshire working on a conservancy educational project in one of the towns in New Hampshire and i think both were fabulous learning experiences because now there's the academic in me, because a job is not just a job, (laughs) it is so much more. And the learning that you can acquire through not only the tasks that you're doing, but the relationships that you're building and the understanding of the work and the meaning of the work, not only for you, but for the people you're working with, all of that is so important. And you're doing it in service to the community. So, I, you know, I'm so delighted to have a chance to speak to the person <laughs> who oversaw the whole kitten caboodle. So, but tell you know, tell me more about why why you have been so passionate about AmeriCorps and Vista.
1: Okay, Vista is an anti-poverty program, and as someone who grew up in poverty, you know, I know what eviction is. I know what you know, the lights being cut off you know, feel like and, and not having enough food. I know what that is. So Vista to me feels like my way of trying to pay back. Um, cause we, we, we got help when we needed it from different sources, but, um, you know, it was a, it was a John F. Kennedy brainchild that he didn't live to see completed. It was the domestic version of the peace Corps,
0: Right.
1: And, um, I think especially now at a time, again, to my point about just the separation between people. The circumstances of your birth largely determine the circumstances of your life and death. You can predict with scary accuracy the likelihood of someone being arrested, someone being um, uh, a high school dropout, someone being um, a part of the criminal justice system, uh, someone being married, someone's life expectancy based on their zip code, right? sad, but true in America in 2021. And AmeriCorps VISTA is one of the few experiences I see there where someone says, I want to serve this country and I'll go maybe serve in an area that is different from my circumstances. um, But I'll work to scale the the capacity of a nonprofit that's fighting against poverty, some facet of poverty, hunger, homelessness, uh, returning citizens, um, at risk youth you know, um, you name it. So I just challenge people like, show me another federal program where you give us $93 million. That's the budget of Vista. And they generate $180 million. They more than double what you gave us. And it's not doubling it for us. They're writing grants for these small nonprofits or these city agencies. They're doing cash or in-kind donation collections for these small, medium-sized nonprofits to help them scale. Those nonprofits are the connective tissue. I mean, the, sometimes the debate gets reduced down to government or no government. And I'm like, there's a healthy nonprofit sector that has always played a part in addressing human needs or the situation that, you know, uh, uh, determines sort of what kind of society we live in. So um, these VISTA members for a year or two, yeah. they play a huge role in, 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 in creating value and they come away with... Mm-hmm because I was the director at the 50th anniversary of VISTA. We had no problem finding people that had spent a a lifetime in a career fighting hunger or homelessness or helping returning citizens reintegrate because of that one to two years in VISTA. J.R.R. Martin, the guy who wrote Game of Thrones, you know, he grew up poor. He grew up poor and served as a VISTA, working in a, a domestic violence nonprofit in Chicago. Uh, helping women coming, mostly women coming out of a DV situation. Um, And, uh, you know, it just changed his life. I mean, it's a transformative experience that I I hope more people can have. And with the money that just got passed through Congress, um, they they have a lot more to work with. So I'm excited about the future of National Service.
0: So good. All right, Jeff, I'll bring you back, (laughs) back in the conversation.
2: (laughs) Thank you, Anne. And I will
0: remind our listeners that
2: this is Leadership in Action. Uh, business radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Jeff Klein, and Paul and I are delighted to be here today with Paul Montero, uh, currently serving as the chief of staff and assistant vice president of external affairs at Howard University. Um, you know, Paul, for, for our listeners um, who might be considering uh, national service or AmeriCorps VISTA service um, or, or for parents out there, um what would you advise them about both the the benefits to the the young person uh of participating in a program like this as well as you know s- some of the um other benefits that the country at large uh receives
1: sure i think you know and and obviously this year of covid has has you know brought the the gap year into the parlance here but but, but that year of service that someone could spend in AmeriCorps, I, I, again, I I can't say enough good about it because it gives you practical life experience. If you want to start a nonprofit one day, AmeriCorps VISTA might be something you want to look at because you're embedded in a nonprofit to figure out what it takes to keep the lights on, to expand programming, to help the nonprofit serve more people. Um, and I think remembering that there are different flavors of AmeriCorps, that, that, this is where it gets confusing. Um, because AmeriCorps could be AmeriCorps State National. That's a grant program. They give checks to nonprofits out there doing direct service. Teach for America, go teach a class. Habitat for Humanity, go build a house. That's one way to serve. AmeriCorps VISTA is more the sort of school for nonprofit management, in my mind, of like you're working with a board. You're working with a development officer. You're working with a, a ED um, to figure out how this nonprofit can be sustained and thrive. Um, You have senior Corps for the folks, the parents themselves, who may be, you know, you you can you can only watch so many soap operas or, you know, you just but you have a desire to serve Um, senior Corps, foster grandparents, uh, folks that uh, are retired who want to support a local public school um, because the teacher, you know, they have a, a lot to deal with in terms of instruction. But what about that foster grandparent who's looking at Paul's been wearing the same shirt five days in a row? Maybe we should have a drive to, 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 to buy a laundry machine, put it in the back. So no one knows and makes fun of Paul, but you know, there may be some kids here who need laundry done or a sack of food to take home over the weekends. Um, but to do it in a discreet way. So no one's making fun of Paul, you know, foster grandparents, I think are a great unless lesser known program. That's part of AmeriCorps where the greatest generation or the baby boomers who, you know, they have a whole career of, of experience and, and, They can play golf, and that's great, but they want to do something else. There's an AmeriCorps for them as well. Um, And then NCCC for the 18 to 24, 25-year-old. That's the only program that's age-limited, where you're the SWAT team of national service. A tornado tore down Anytown, USA. Uh, An NCCC based on the CCC from FDR days. yeah. An NCCC team is deploying from one of the campuses nationwide. They wear uniforms. They're going to set up camp. They're going to set up a shelter. They're going to set up a canteen to feed people. Uh, they're going to install some solar panels. you know, so there are different flavors of AmeriCorps that people can choose their own adventure around. Um, and in this moment, I think there's too many signals of the, the health of our civic, civil society, our democracy. National service is one of those ways for people to recognize that there are folks that may not be related to them or look like them or have anything in common with their beliefs. But there are neighbors too, yeah. and there there's a lot we still have in common. Um, if we put ourselves in a space where we can meet and know them, and serve them, uh, so I can't say enough good things about AmeriCorps.
2: Yeah, Paul, I, I really appreciate that. And and uh, Mike and Ann hosted
1: David Gergen on our show. I was I was tuned in. I was I was taking notes. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so in, in in your mind, and and knowing knowing the program, and and knowing Washington. Um, it, what would it take for for national public service um, and, and to create the kinds of opportunities for you know all of us, but especially the the young people to live and work side by side with people from different parts of this country?
1: I you know I I don't want to because people throw money around like that's the answer. I don't think that's the answer, but that's a big part of it. And I say that because. Um, there's no shortage of examples of folks, even from low-income communities, who've gone on to serve in the military. Mm-hmm. And it's not because maybe they have a history of military service throughout the generations of their family. It's because military recruiters are coming to their school. And it, you, know, you can travel the world. You can get all these benefits by serving in the Navy. And I'm not minimizing that at all. But I do think that so many people would, would see this as a viable pathway for themselves if they knew it existed, if there were enough slots for them to serve in it. Um, And and I'm not saying we're anywhere near DOD's uh, budget or that we ever will or should be, but I am saying that national service um, programs, they give so much back to the country. And I do think a a generation of of millennials who see the things that are happening in this country, and our world, see something's wrong with it and want to do something about it. I think they would jump at the chance to serve um, if they knew the pathway existed and, you know, could have the resources to support them. Um, to to pursue that pathway of of national service. So again, I'm I'm heartened by the increased billion dollars more that got passed in the American Rescue Plan for the corporation, for AmeriCorps, to expand these opportunities. Um, But I, I think a lot of folks would jump at the chance to say, whether they're a college or high school student or a retiree, to say, don't you wanna do something to help your own community or a community on the other side of town? I think a lot of folks would respond affirmatively If they knew the pathway existed and had a a clear way to actually be successful in that in that role. That's a great point. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Um, You you know, I I, we've spent
2: um, a a fair amount of time, you know, kind of walking with you through through your career and and your set of experiences. and uh, I'll note, I feel like we could probably extend this interview by an hour or two, and, and <laughs> yes. you know, I'd still be uh, super engaged and, and interested. But I, I want to make sure that we have time to ask you about the the work that you're doing now. You're you're an alum of Howard University, as as we've talked about a little bit earlier, and and um, you know. Ann and I are both alums of the University of Pennsylvania, so it's probably a little self-serving to ask about alumni returning to, you
0: know, yeah.
2: <laughs> re- returning to uh, uh, their, their places of higher education. But what brought you back to Howard, and then um,
1: help us understand the work that you're engaged in right now? Uh, one of my mentors brought me back, uh, Dean uh, Bernard Richardson. He's the dean of the Chapel here at uh, Rankin. I, I met him when I was a uh, a law student and um, kept in touch with him when I was working in government. And after the um, end of the administration, I I was talking to him around some job opportunities I was thinking about. And he asked me, what are you doing for Howard? And I said, "You know, Dean, I, I don't know what I'm doing. What am I doing for Howard? I don't know if there are any opportunities there. And he says, go talk to Dr. Frederick, the president of the school. And I was, I don't know Dr. Frederick. He said, I'll set it up, go talk to him. He'll give you advice. And what turned into I, what I thought was a career counseling conversation turned into an interview where Dr. Frederick said, you know, I need a chief of staff. Would you be interested? And, and I said, yeah, absolutely. So I came on um, four years ago as his chief of staff and then picked up the uh, government relations portfolio for Howard um, a year ago. Howard's the only historically black college or university, HBCU, chartered by Congress. Um, actually, uh, it's a it's, it's little known fact. President Andrew Johnson, the same day he vetoed the first Reconstruction Act, chartered, signed the charter for Howard University. And it's um, probably rolling over in his grave when he thinks about, uh, you know, we have a vice president from this place, uh, the first Black and, and Asian woman, vice president of the United States who graduated uh, as an undergrad from Howard University. So in my role here, I focus as chief of staff to the president, uh, chief of stuff, uh, is some good advice I got from my one of my mentors, Dennis McDonough, who was the White House Chief of Staff. I went to him as soon as I got the job because I was like, I've never, I've never been a Chief of Staff, Dennis. You know, how do you do this? Um, and then he said, it's it's not chief, it's stuff. That's the most important part of your <laughs> your time. And then he's he's right. I mean, it's like my job is whatever the president needs done. And on, on the external affairs side, most of our work on the Hill is focused on, you know, the federal investment in Howard at a time where a lot of folks are paying attention to black people all of a sudden, and and, and with good reason, um, because the disparities um, are not limited to any one sector. You look at home values, you look at health outcomes, you look at life outcomes, you look at uh, criminal justice outcomes. And as people are looking to be a part of the solution, they're finding how it is right there. Our medical school trains half the black doctors in America. Our law school trains about half the black lawyers in America. Um, Our dental school, half the black dentists in America. So this one school is a very special place as people are looking at uh, disparities in the nation, as they're looking at how do we solve the pipeline problems, getting more people into these fields. Um, So a lot of our work now is is showing the return on the federal investment and how Howard for 154 years has been trying to be a part of the solution because the status quo did not favor uh, black Americans in 1867. And arguably in 2021, the status quo uh, doesn't either. So um it's a busy but 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 uh good time for Howard because there's a lot that we can um point to in terms of solutions to these issues.
2: And let me uh let me offer you the chance for a, a final question here as we yeah. race towards the post.
0: All right. Well, Paul, just maybe if you would speak to a moment about the importance of having historically black colleges for students of
1: color. I think I know the, that the, might
0: seem like an obvious question, but I think it needs saying.
1: No and, and and Dr. G, I appreciate the question because you know it wasn't too long ago that people were questioning do we even need these institutions uh, and and I think the the, the proper question is uh, you know how do we best support these institutions that give so much to the country? Um, at a time where we are, you know, you can look at Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. Our American public school systems are more segregated today than they were in 1954. So you can have laws on the books, you can have regulations and yet the reality is different. And HBCUs provide a unique opportunity for students from low or you know low income backgrounds. so that that's I think the, the point I'm most proud of because I'm one of those kids. Um, we have demonstrated the return on the investment where you take students from the lowest quintile of income, first generation college, and you get them through to graduation and much better outcomes. I mean, US News and World Report started tracking social mobility. and, and if you look at who's ranking highest on those measures, I mean, University of California is right there, but in terms of private institutions, Howard University is at the top of the heap because we're taking student, half of our undergraduate population is Pell Grant eligible. You know, these are the students that colleges would otherwise say, we want you, but we don't want to pay for you.
0: Right, right.
1: So we'll we'll have about 10% of you. Try 50%. So I, I think there's a great story to be told with the nation's HBCUs, not just Howard. But all hundred, one of them, to show how they take students that are bright, they just were not born into privilege, and bring them into a better outcome where they're the nature's, nation's teachers, doctors, lawyers, dentists.
0: Uh,
1: it's, 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 it's a great record.
0: Well, thank you for that. And Jeff, here we go. <laughs> Hit the post.
1: <laughs> all right. So, um,
2: Paul, let me let me just start out and say thank you so much for for joining the show today and for the yeah, Thank you. Uh, that that we've been able to have, um, I I feel like the world may have lost a particularly committed history teacher, uh, but I think we've gained we we've gained so much more. So thank you for your service to the country, thank you. and thanks for being willing to share your your insights on the show today.
1: My pleasure, and shout out to Kyla, your best
2: student. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Well. To our listeners, thank you all so much for joining us. Uh, If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And please be sure to follow our show on Twitter at SXM Business. We want to say once again, a special thank you to our guest, Paul Montero. uh, And, you know, to our good buddy. She's a senior fellow over at the Fells Institute, also a senior fellow in our Center for Leadership and Change Management, uh, and that is Elizabeth Bale. And she connected us to Paul for this conversation today. Uh, we'd like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Jeff Klein. I'm here with Anne Greenhall, and you've been listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. Have a great week.
0: For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.